The great thing is that to encourage you to, to use these accounts, a lot of employers will often give you money, right? So not only is it tax-free money, sometimes it's actually free-free money that you might be getting <laughs> from your employers. Power Hour fam, today I chat with Ami Kumorsi, and she's an impressive woman. She's a Stanford-trained physician, also has her MBA, and she's the founder of Sika Health, which is a fintech marketplace that allows you to tap into your FSA and HSA funds. And not sure if you know about this, but you have funds there, especially if you work for an employer that will expire at the end of each year for FSA and roll into the next year for HSA, but that you can use. And she shares all about how you can tap into that, how Sika is addressing that problem. Ami also tells me about what it was like immigrating to the U.S. from Ghana for her and her family, what her experience being a physician founder is like, and she shares advice for how to build a team, how to grow your product, fundraise, and what routines have been really helpful for her. So enjoy Ami, guys. It's a good one. Hi, Ami. Hi, Jennifer. Good to see you. Oh, my goodness. It's so good to see you. Last time was at this glorious wedding we were both at, and it was a phenomenal atmosphere. That's right. That was, what, just over, just about six months ago, we were both in Italy for a gorgeous classmates' <laughs> wedding, and then I understand you returned uh, to the, the location for your wedding, um, and, you know, had probably a really great time before starting this podcast. So yeah. excited to see you again and to be able to have this conversation. And now I'm in Austin, which is where you grew up. <laughs> That's, I saw that. Yeah. When did you move to Austin? We moved here a year ago. And I hear you're moving. Where are you moving to? Oh, just to a new place within New York. So, okay. Yeah. Not a big move, just moving locally, which has been, which is nice. I'm now a little bit closer to the offense, which makes life that much easier. Oh, so good. So I love it. Any moving hacks that you're leaning into that are helpful? Oh, I have zero hacks. I feel like <laughs> I'm like the so worst hard. person I'm moving. I'm the person who I will still have boxes to unpack when I'm moving again. Um, but I think it's, if anything, it's just get extra help, get extra hands. So we got some help moving. We got some, you know, probably yeah. get a task, grab it to help unpack and, you know, just to make, make things a little bit easier. Yeah. Well, I wish you smooth moving. I'm so glad to have you on. So Ami, you're the founder of Sika Health, which is a fintech marketplace. You're allowing folks to unleash the power of their health wallets, tap into $8 billion worth of funds that go unused each year, which is crazy. So we're going to dive into that in a minute. But I thought we would start with your personal background because it's so fascinating. And you are a Stanford MD, so medical doctor and MBA. You are the daughter of immigrant parents. And like we chatted briefly about, you grew up in Austin. What was it like for you and your family settling into Austin? Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you so much uh, for that introduction. Um, absolutely. So I'm a physician turned founder of, of Sika Health. We are a seed stage company. And as you were saying, we're on a mission to reinvent the way that we all pay for our health needs. And we do this by offering financial technology to merchants that allows you to spend your health plan as a form of payment, starting with your FSA and HSA funds. And we're doing this really because we envision a future where everyone can save money on their health needs um, by leveraging tools that they they already have. And um, I'd love to tell you more and more about that. I think we'll get into the company, but maybe I can back up and tell you um, a little bit more about my background leading up to, to Austin, if that's okay. Yes, please. 
Yeah. Um, so, so I am actually um, an immigrant myself. So I'm a former, former fellow West African. I was yeah. born in Ghana. Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Ghana, um, and I was raised in a small town called Obwasi. Um, it's actually the epicenter of the gold mining operations in 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 Ghana. Ghana's actually called the Gold Coast. Um, and I mentioned that because that's where my mom actually worked when I was growing up. She worked as a secretary, and you know we lived very comfortably by Ghanaian standards. Um, you know we had a TV, which was like a big deal at the time. Um, but that was really sort of the peak of you know at least the mom the vision that that, that the life that my mom envisioned for, for us and myself. And she worked very hard to get us there. And so um, part of that's part of why she brought me to the states um, when I came at the age of six was to have that opportunity to ha um, have a path to you know better life um, here in the U.S. How did your family pick Austin? Yeah, you know, um, it's, it's funny. Most of my family lives in Albany, New York. Uh, so that's where we first came when we first came to the States. And my mom just said, it's way too cold. Uh, and so one day she put me in a car and we started driving south. The next thing I knew, we were in Austin, Texas, which is definitely not way too cold. If anything, it's way too hot. Uh, but, you know, we've been there ever since. And she loves it. And I love it too. I'm really uh, grateful to be able to grow up there. That's beautiful. Yes, we apparently had the hottest summer in history of Austin. It's either that wow. or it's just a regular Austin summer and people are just lying to us to get us not to leave. <laughs> I, I regularly remember every single summer there's this mantra of like 100 plus days of 100 plus weather. And I was like, eh, too many hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. so where is your dad in this picture, Ami? Yeah, so I, my dad was never part of my, my life. So um, single parent. Um, I did reconnect with him later in life, but... For all intents and okay. purposes, you know, really was raised by my mom and my mom's side of the family. What a wonderful woman. So your mom's still here? She's still here. She's still in, in Austin, actually. So probably not Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. So then what led you to becoming a physician? What formative experiences or how did that come mm -hmm. about for you? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, I, I came to the States when I was, I was quite young, when I was six. Um, and there's a lot that, that came into moving to a new country and, and you know, assimilating but I, I remember even at that young age, I, I remember there was one thing that stayed the same between these two places. So, you know, whether it was Ghana or the U.S., I made this observation that, wow, the, the poorest people are often the sickest, right? And yeah. vice versa, you know, poor, poor health uh, often led to, to poverty. And that was just as true, no matter, you know, these places, despite this massive difference in, in wealth. And it was, um, you know, yes, there were different diseases, but that trend was still the same. So. It was kind of that observation from, you know, I think a pretty, you know, precocious age that maybe just, it just felt like unfair and I wanted to, to do something about it. It felt like, you know, how can, you know, if I could get to the source, right, of, you know, giving people better health, that I could give them a chance to get out of poverty or to have, you know, a path to a better life. And, uh, and so that's ultimately why I wanted to, be, to become a physician was to sort of work towards that health as that sort of great equalizer. Yeah, I believe that everyone has a right to access to health and that your health shouldn't be determined by where you are born or what conditions you're born into. So really, really resonate with that mission. Out of curiosity, did you and your mom get go back to Ghana during your upbringing while you were here in Austin? We, we did, although not nearly enough, you know, um, it's hard, before COVID. Yeah, yeah there's, there's always, you know, work is calling, hard to get time off and, you know, it's a long trip, you know, so... We went back, I think uh, I went back, been back twice, once with my mom and once without, and long overdue for, for another trip. Um, but yeah, hopefully sometime in the next couple of years, we'll go back again. Yeah, no, and I've had the luck, honor, pleasure to get to visit Ghana. 
Uh, and wanted to, yeah, I was in Accra. I was doing, when I was working on my nonprofit, we went there for some time for some work and wanted to ask you if you have thoughts on Ghanaian jollof versus Nigerian jollof. <laughs> Oh, of course, there's so many, so many thoughts. Well, really, just that there's only one. There's only one right answer. Exactly, there's only one right answer, and I think you can guess. I, I was fortunate. I had, um, I went upstate uh, to have um, some time with family this weekend and had some very good, authentic Ghanaian jollof. And there's only one one to be had. Was this for your? I think you had a World Health nonprofit. Yeah, I was doing healthcare. We were addressing postpartum hemorrhage, and we went and worked with some organizations in Ghana first, and then moved to Sierra Leone. Wonderful, wonderful time. Amazing, Amazing. food. I love the fufu and the jollof. Actually, we have tons of fufu and jollof in Sierra Leone as well. But it's always nice to taste the yeah. different types, you know. So yeah, no, it, it's yeah, it's so funny. These foods are, you know, they they end up being attributed to one country, but you're so right. They're sort of regional, and you know, there are regional variations that come with. Yeah. Um, how was it with your mom in Austin being from Africa? Do you remember any, because even for me, I moved to the U S at 16 and it was an adjustment for me. So I can only imagine as a six-year-old. Yeah, definitely. I think adjustment is the right word. Um, you know, so, so many, yeah, so many things to learn, so many things to, you know, that I felt like I had to do differently, like dress differently or speak differently. You notice now I, I don't have a, you know, very much of an accent and a lot of it comes from just you know, being young and want to fit in, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're a certain age, you just don't, you never want to feel different, you know? So yeah. I remember that was probably my really prevailing, you know, experience growing up is like, oh, why, why do I feel, why do I feel different? Why did my mom put me in these like clothes with big shoulders for picture day? I just want to wear what the kids, what their yeah. other kids wear. But um, I feel very lucky. Austin is, Austin is one of these places that is very, you know, open. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just a lot of different people kind of all commingling. Um, the, one of the words that comes to mind for me in Austin is just like juxtaposition, you know, because there's just different people from different backgrounds. You know, even when I was growing up, like maybe 50% of the population was Hispanic or Spanish speaking, you know, so there are just, you know, it was, it was one of the few places um, I would say in Texas <laughs> where, yeah. you know, differences can be celebrated. And I feel lucky that, you know, I was always surrounded by, you know, family and, and had, you know, places to still kind of own my differences, um, yeah, you know, even yeah. when kind of the broader world felt like was wanting me to be the same. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned as a kid, you tend not to want to be different. And now as an adult, you look back and you're like, oh man, I, I really appreciate these clothes and being different and owning my difference. It's such a powerful thing now. I don't want to fit in. I want to stand out. It's so, so it's a beautiful it's thing. So all right, let's talk about your med school experience. I was pre-med, Ami, and so I know that Stanford Med School is no joke. Any med school is no joke. What was your experience like? And what would you tell to folks that are applying to med school? Yeah, so I would say this. Um, my, so I feel very, very fortunate, you know, to, to have gone to Stanford. It's just an incredible place in general and, and medical school in, in particular. And that it was just this big kind of playground in a way. Like, of course, there was the curriculum and you had to, you know, you had to do well on the test, you know, but there, there was just so much room to explore um, interests. Um, and, you know, I, I just feel really lucky that I, I went, you know, I had an education that, that preserved that. And that's something that, you know, even going into medical school was really important for me, you know, as a pre-med and even during medical school, there's, I felt anyway, this pressure to like check boxes, you know, you have to to get the grades, you have to do all the tests, and then you have to volunteer, and you have to shadow, then you have to do research, and there's just so many boxes to check, and you can just wind yourself up checking boxes all day. Um, but, you know, I think one of the, the breakthroughs for me was um, realizing that 
there's a why behind every box you check. And it's so important to be connected to the why. You know? So for me, you know, doing research wasn't, you know, wasn't just to check the box. You know, I had to, I had to learn, you know, why I wanted to do research. I like to solve problems. I like to contribute knowledge into the world. I like to discover things, right? And when, when I was able to connect with the why, not only did it make, make me more successful, it made me actually enjoy, you know, the things that I was doing and it made it easy to, to be successful um, because I was connected to, to why I was doing certain things. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that, you know, is, I think is relevant to my story is that sometimes exploring the why leads me to different answers, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I had lots of people, a lot of friends who, you know, like you were, were pre-med at a certain point and then, you know, started doing these things and realized like, actually, I don't really like taking care of sick people or I don't really like doing research or I don't really like, you know, and, and that's okay too, because sometimes listening to the why will set you on a different path that ultimately is, you know, is better for you. Um, and that, that certainly kind of happened um, in my journey as well. So I think my, my advice to people pre-med, post-med school is just, is to try to try to get out of the mindset of checking boxes and try to focus on why, why, why am I doing this thing? Why, does, why do I feel like this is an important box for me to check? What, what do I get out of this experience? And is it something that I actually enjoy or am I only doing it because I feel like it's required, right? That's such great advice, Ami. The thing that comes to mind for me is exploring the why and focusing on the why allows you to be more fulfilled. And that is so, so important for us. Okay, so why the dual MBA? Yeah. <laughs> like the yes. MD, is it enough work for our overachiever over here? <laughs> yes, yeah. So why the MBA? You know, I think, so I, I'll carry it by saying I, I love medical school. I went in with the full intention of, of becoming a physician. And in fact, for me, the hardest part was which specialty do I go into? Because every specialty I went into, I just, I was obsessed and really excited. Yeah. I could see myself being a promiser. I could see myself doing this. I could see myself doing that. Um, but ultimately, you know, the more time I spent in medical school, the more I, I started experiencing the, the actual clinical rotations and being in the hospital, the more I started looking around and realizing, like, man, there's a lot of things that are just broken, you know, it just, just don't work. And even in the middle of Silicon Valley at Stanford Hospital, which is wonderful places, there's just like basic things that just weren't, that didn't really work. And, and I'll give you an example relevant to my story is, you know, one of the many things that was broken was just kind of the financial side of healthcare it was just yeah. like not really like very disjointed in that, you know, I knew and a lot of people knew that, of course, there's a link between health and finances. And yet being able to bring that into the room as we were making decisions or having conversations about a patient's care were just really, really hard. Um, and even, you know, I'm sure we all have our version of this story, but just having conversations with a patient where, you know, they would ask very basic questions, important questions, like, will my insurance cover this? If so, how much do I have to pay out of pocket? You know, what's the cost of this procedure overall? This were honestly just impossible to answer structurally. And that just didn't make a lot of sense to me, given this understanding that I had and the reason that I went into medicine, which is that obviously those two things are, are linked, the health and the financial aspect. So, you know, I, I, I increasingly became frustrated by this, you know, one, one of many things that was, was broken. And I also, I think one of the things I started to realize was that even though I loved the like day-to-day one-on-one patient care, it was, I just was, I was going to be limited in my ability to, to kind of help patients at the root if that was how I spent all of my time, right? And so, you know, I, I started to, to realize that, you know, I needed to, to sort of position myself at a slightly different level right? A slightly different altitude. I needed to work more at the systems level if I wanted to be able to help patients and some, you know, to fix some of these problems that I saw. So 
um, going across the street to, to Stanford to get an MBA seemed like a logical next step in that it would, you know, position me to, to at least see the many ways that I could have an impact on healthcare to be able to see the system from a little bit of a broader perspective and then decide, you know, whether going down the clinical path was still the right path for me or whether I wanted to transition into a, a different non-clinical career. So it was really just that, that option value as well as the being able to see things from a different altitude. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Ami, but my background was in chemical engineering and then I worked a lot in research and then in healthcare and didn't have much exposure to business. And so the yes. MBA for me was really eye-opening and useful. Curious what that was like for you, what value you feel you got from that and having that with the MD. Yeah. Um, I have a, a similar background as you. So I was a biomedical engineer at, as a pre-med. Um, and, and part of what that meant, you know, as you can relate, was my schedule was so jam-packed with, you know, those requirements that I, I never took a business class. My first business yeah. class ever was when I when I got to Stanford. So even just from that perspective of just teaching me a different way to think and just teaching me a different way to approach problems was huge. Um, and I realized that I really enjoyed having that the sort of like systems type thinking that I could bring from, from medical school and then being able to combine that with like the way I think as an engineer, being able to combine that with the way I think as kind of a, a business person or financial, you know, thinking about financial problems. So I love, and I, I, I sort of think about that as one of my, my, my sort of triple threat <laughs> is that yeah. I've been able to kind of put those different hats on in different moments and, and, you know, through that see problems in a way that maybe not a lot of people can see, right? Because they haven't been able to sort of move through through those, yeah. those at least different types of education and training. Yeah, and knowing you personally, you're definitely endorsing this triple threat army over here. Okay, so I love the story of how you founded Sika. It involves your mom and a personal problem you had. Will you tell it to us? Absolutely. Yeah, so so I think generally I've had this notion around kind of health and finances, but the, the specific, um, you know, inspiration for, for Sika, um, for what led to Sika came in 2020. So um, my mom, unfortunately, um, lost her job. She's working as a hotel worker at the time. And losing her job meant losing her health plan, which also meant at the time that her FSA would expire, you know, basically overnight. Um, and I don't know if you, um, you or your audience is familiar with an FSA, but it's, it's a part of your health plan that allows you to spend tax-free money. On, on, you know, basic health needs. Um, the problem is that it's a use it or lose it account and you can only spend it on certain things and no one tells you what those things are. So it's just one of these sort of very broken parts of your, of your health plan. And so I was helping her to sort of, um, to sort of And just, just, for, the, just yeah. for the general audience, it's use it or lose it in this year. That's correct. It's use it or lose it in the year. But if you lose your job, it's lose it or lose it by the end of the month. It's even There's even more urgency, right? For people who are, you know, unfortunately in a, in a tough financial situation. So that, that was the situation that my mom, um, you know, and I were facing. And so we, you know, I helped her to try to figure out where she could spend these funds so that she didn't lose them. And as I, as we went through that challenge, I, I learned a few things that, that actually, you know, that actually kind of got me excited about that space. Um, the, the first thing I learned is that, you know, you can actually spend these accounts, the FSA and its sister accounts is the HSA. You can spend them on way more things than most people realize. Um, so, of course, a lot of people know that you can spend it on like, doctor's offices or doctor's visits. Um, but not a lot of people know that you can spend it on prescriptions or your glasses or even fitness equipment like a Peloton or nutrition, vitamins and supplements. So really just a broad range of, of items that pertain to your health. And that was, I think, a really exciting discovery. Um, the second thing that we learned was that this is a problem that's, that's actually really two-sided. Um, so a lot of people like my mom, a lot of, you know, shoppers, you know, struggle to spend these funds, but a lot of the reason for that is because 
many of the places where they're going to buy, the merchants themselves struggle to accept FSA and HSA funds as a form of payment. Um, and that problem starts at the level of, you know, those merchants don't even know the broad range of things that are covered, right? So it seemed like there was just an opportunity definitely at the level of consumers and shoppers, but also at the level of merchants. Um, and then the, the third thing we learned through this experience is that we really weren't alone. Um, you know, there, there are about 70 million people in the U.S., you know, that have FSAs and HSA accounts. Um, it accounts for about $150 billion that gets contributed into these accounts every year. And as you were saying, Jen, you know, about $8 billion of these dollars goes to waste every year, like literally poop expires because of this problem that my mom was facing and that folks like, like her was facing. And so for all these reasons, I thought, man, I know I'm generally interested in kind of health and finances. This seems like a very specific, you know, an important, you know, problem within that, that segment that, that, you know, feels really urgent to solve. And, and why not start there? I'm so glad that you are addressing this. Can we talk about the FSA, HSA? How do these funds become available? Are they available to everyone? How does that work? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So the FSA and HSA, they're, they're, they're sort of sister accounts, and I'll, I'll say what they stand for. The FSA stands for Flexible Spending Account. The HSA stands for Health Savings Account. They're both typically workplace benefits. So they're benefits that you typically get as part of your health plan, and most people get their health plan at work. Um, that allows you to spend pre-tax money on your health. So every year, your employer will ask you in the same way that they'll ask you, what kind of health plan do you want? They'll ask you, do you want an FSA or do you want an HSA? And if you say yes, you get to, they'll, they'll take money out of your, um, to fund these accounts. Um, that is money that you haven't been taxed on. So you never get taxed on money and you get to put them into these accounts and then spend it on your health. The great thing is that to encourage you to, to use these accounts, a lot of employers will often give you money, right? So not only is it tax-free money, sometimes it's actually free-free money that you might be getting <laughs> from your employer. Sometimes your health insurer does the same thing. So, you know, I think the average, on average people get a few, you know, two, three hundred, three to $400 from some of these sources to get them to incentivize them to spend on their health. And um, they work slightly differently. FSAs expire at the end of the year. HSAs roll over. You can actually invest them. And those investments are tax-free as well. But the bottom line is that there are these tools that you have that allow you to save money and use that towards your health. Yeah. And we like free-free money or tax-free like, money. So exactly. great for this to be on our radar. So then how does SICA work? So, so the way we work is that we enable merchants to accept FSA and HSA funds directly as a form of payment. Um, and, and the reason we're doing this is, again, that, you know, if we want people to feel encouraged to sign up and utilize these accounts, we have to make them easy to use. No one wants to take money out of their paycheck without knowing if they're going to be able to get it out, right? Yeah. And so I just had this vision of, like, what if there was a payment method that shows up at checkout every time you're going to shop that informs you and gives you the option to easily spend this money that you have sitting and, and waiting to be spent? Um, we're actually focused on online merchants, merchants to start. Um, because okay. we realize that there's actually no solution out there right now for that market segment. Um, and so our product is actually um, it's actually the, going to be the first third-party payment solution for e-commerce that is fully, you know, makes it easy for you to spend these funds in a way that's uh, regulatorily and compliant. Um, a short detour because these are tax-free funds, they're regulated by the IRS, and that's part of why they're so hard to use. Um, so anyway, the product works very similar to PayPal or Buy Now, Pay Later product, if you've ever used that, where you're shopping and then you get to check out and you'll see a button that says, hey, yes, you can use your FSA or HSA here. And then you click on that button and you buy. Um, and then behind the scenes, we're doing a bunch of work partnering with the merchant to handle all the compliance. So we help actually the merchants get certified so that they can accept those funds. 
Um, we help their products get approved as FSA and HSA also, because there's a the whole approval process. And then we actually securely log the purchases and, you know, help the merchant defend in case of an any IRS audit, because they're very concerned that, you know, these dollars are used appropriately. Um, and then some items, you know, actually require a little extra work to basically a doctor's note to showcase that you're using that product towards a specific health need, right? So let's say you're buying an Apple Watch. You could buy an Apple Watch just because you like the way it looks, or you could buy an Apple Watch because you like some of the medical features. And so we actually, you know, provide that sort of medical stamp of approval if you're buying it for the medical features. Um, and so overall, there's a lot of benefits on, on both sides for merchants. We help them grow their revenue um, by offering their customers a new way to pay, right? And then for those customers, for the shoppers, we allow you to save money that you already, and by spending money that you've already paid, that also happens to be tax-free and maybe also free-free. What are the merchants that you partner with that we can use some of our FSA and HSA funds with? Yeah. So we actually partner with any merchant that sells eligible health items, and, and there's a real variety there. Um, so we partner with some merchants that actually sell feminine care products to young women, some merchants that mm. sell hearing aid or incontinence care to older adults, so really a broad range. Right, because everyone has health needs and everyone deserves to save on those various health expenses. And so the, the way our product works now is that we're actually um, building out a, an, a, an API version of the product that any merchant can work with and can install into their platform. Um, and then through that, make the service available to you as a consumer. Got it. So if I had unused funds in my wallet, what would I do? Would I go to Sika's website to search out like merchants that I can buy from? Or is there a different yeah. route for me to take? Yeah, so we'll um, we'll probably be launching or publicly announcing some of the merchants that we're working with um, early in the next year, and then we would actually showcase on the website, and you'd be able to go through that directly. But really, the the hope is to just move quickly as quickly as possible and have these, you know, very have our payment products show up at checkout just out in the wild, so that you can start to see Beautiful. it, you know, in all the normal places that you would would shop. Beautiful. Can we talk about Seeker Operations for a bit? Sure. I'm very fortunate. We have built an incredible team. We're about, we're eight now. We work in person in New York. So we have kind of a hybrid working model. And the, the great advantage of our team is that we have this, you know, unique experience, mix of experience, both on the health side, right? From, from like my background, as well as on the, the kind of payments and, and fintech side. So mm -hmm. um, the uh, head of engineering and, and actually a lot of our, our engineering team is coming from Etsy. If you know them, yes. they're a large global commerce company. And so some of my teammates actually built the payments team and payments experience at Etsy and are able to bring that experience to Sika. So really combined um, with that experience, we're able to, to build this, this product that, you know, my view is long overdue, right, to be made out into, uh, into the world. Um, and I'll say beyond our, our full-time team, we actually have some really heavy hitters from various relevant companies. So our technical advisors coming from Klarna, who's the former CTO of Klarna, they're a buy now pay later company that started in Sweden. Um, we have angel investors um, who are both the co-founders of, of Plaid, their banking integration platform. And then we have advisors who are both kind of product and operational needs from Hillpack, uh, acquired by Amazon, their major pharmacy company. So really a really broad, you know, mix of people. Um, and, you know, I can look back now and, and sort of smile and have, have a sense of relief, you know, a wonderful yeah. team that we have. But, you know, I, I can't say it was definitely not an easy journey getting there. Um, you know, and that when I first started and had the idea for Sika, you know, I didn't have anyone immediately in my network who, you know, had this specific skill set um, that I, I needed to, to start building. And, and so it did take a lot of patience, a lot of relationship building, a lot of asking for advice. You know, I, I've never hired anyone to be either truthfully, right? So I had to surround myself with people who had, um, including, you know, bringing on recruiters who helped me on the executive side, technical recruiting, 
Um, and it was through that that I was able to, to build um, such a, a strong team that we have today. Yeah, that's an excellent team. Huge kudos to you. It does take a village. If there was one thing you say, looking back, that allowed you, you think to be successful in assembling this team together, which is not an easy feat at all, does anything come to mind? Mm -hmm. one, one thing that helps in assembling the team, um, I would say that one of the, the major shifts that I had to make was, you know, really focusing on kind of people first, right? And, and that there's, there are a lot of people in the world who have the skill set on paper, but, mm -hmm. you know, when it is such a small team, every single person is adding and materially changing the culture. So it's just so important. And I had to learn that it was so important to really get to know the people first, understand their value systems, you know, surface why they, why they would contemplate going to, you know, the small startup, you know, to what, what about the mission aligned with them and really getting to know people. So it was this sort of a little bit of like a counterintuitive recruiting process where, yes, of course, we talk about business and skill set. But ultimately, we're focused on values and communication and, you know, um, motivations and understanding, you know, um, uh, understanding, coming to an understanding that, you know, those were people that sort of shared my values around empathy, around, you know, contributing to helping people, you know, live healthier lives. And we're really kind of aligned from that skill, that set standpoint first, you know, yeah. over the like skill set, you check these boxes. Totally. And I think that goes for both your your team that you work with, as well as your advisors, your investors. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Awesome. And then let's talk a little bit about your fundraise. You raised $6 million in a seed round from all of these wonderful people. You mentioned Ulu Ventures, Plaid Founders, Forerunner Ventures. These are great investors. What did you learn from your fundraising experience that you would share with other founders that have this journey ahead of them? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm a fan of your, your the Power Hour podcast, you know, and, you know, I listened to a, a few different founders journeys and, you know, the interview that you did with Fatima sticks yeah. out to me the most. It, 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 she said something along the lines of, I just, I just hope for a day where it's not like, we don't even talk about yeah. <laughs> fundraising, you know, and I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm, I think fortunately and unfortunately, amongst the people, the, among black female founders that raised, um, you know, have, have raised. And, and I think in 2021, the year I raised, you know, we accounted for like 0.34% of funds raised, um, you know, went to black female founders um, as according to, to crunching. So there's a massive funding gap. And I think in, in part, it's sort of a, a feat when someone, you know, like me, like me raises. And I hope for a day where it's not a feat. I hope for a day when that's just normal, you know, um, but in terms of how I overcame, you know, I think there's there's always for a lot of people, and I, I think certainly for me, there was a sense of sort of you know a little bit of a, an insecurity, right, going into fundraising, and that and for me, part of that came from the fact that I was not really a traditional. I didn't come from a traditional background as, as founders go, right? I've never worked in tech, and here I was building a fintech company. But ultimately, you know, I think it, it just sort of took leaning into what made me unique. The fact that I, I was a physician trade at Stanford, the fact that I did have this non-traditional background, those were the things that led me to see the opportunity and therefore, you know, could, were, were, were going to set me up to be, you know, hopefully be successful in this. So I think it was kind of leaning into those differences and not letting the narrative of, oh, well, I haven't done this or I'm not this or I don't look like this um, get, in, get in my way. Absolutely. I think all founders need to be exceptionally bold in believing in their vision. And at the same time, you get all these no's either from yeah. the market or from bits and pieces of a team that you're trying to recruit or investors or 
whatever other thing. And it's about really believing in yourself, leaning into what makes you authentic. There are about 8 billion people out there. There's only one you and still going for it and believing you can do it. Definitely. I think that's so Which right. Is easier said than done. <laughs> it's so much easier said than done. I, I think it's also hard to remember that when you're in the heat of, let's say, fundraising or heat of trying to get things done. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, fundraising is all about selling, you know, as is recruiting, as is sales, you know, and uh, a lot of what, you know, the, the selling motion looks like, uh, or at least looked like for me, was really just focusing on convincing investors of two things, right? The only two things that they needed to believe were that, number one, this problem that I'm solving is a big, important, and urgent problem. And number two, that I was the right person and had the right team to, to, to build it, right? And everything else is sort of the supporting bullet points, right? So traction and revenue, that's all great. And, and obviously we should, you know, and there's a lot to be done to, to add to those data points. But at the end of the day, I think it was sort of reminding myself that actually the things, <laughs> you know, right. don't leave with the data, right? Leave with the story around why this is an important problem and why I was the right person to solve this problem. If I could I hone in on that as the core message that I was delivering, that that, you know, at least was the sort of the right starting point, um, you know, to, 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 to be able to, to get my foot in the door and to be able to, to fundraise. Um, you know, I think you'd also ask me about advice to founders. I think one, one other piece of advice I would give people is that, you know, people don't talk about this as much as I, I think they should, but fundraising, it's just, it's all about preparation. Like that's all it is. Um, and, and, you know, we all know how to prepare. And I knew that I've done a lot of preparation and that's what's made me successful in the past. So if I could bring that preparation into, into this, this fundraising as just another task that I had to learn, that I had to prepare for, you know, whether it was making the list, you know, of investors that I, I, I wanted to, to, you know, to pitch to, um, making the list of who would introduce me to those investors. There's a whole amount of preparation that goes into that. Obviously doing the reps on the pitch deck, right? And, and making that pitch deck around that story of like, why is this important? Why am I the right person, right? So doing the reps to get that story across very quickly and clearly. And then, you know, getting in front of the mirror, getting in front of people, getting in front of, you know, um, whoever it is, right, to sort of pitch and, and, and prepare for the questions and the yeah buts and the objections that you're likely to get and just doing that cycle over and over again. And it's really just a matter of coming prepared and being willing to hear the nose and yet keep going through the nose to get to the other side. Yeah. And for folks who maybe don't have access to investors or someone in their network who knows investors, the other points that you mentioned about being really prepared, why you, why this problem is so important and sharing that either with a cold email or with people who you don't know that might know investors goes a long way as well. I think that that's so right. You know, I, I would say, you know, when I started, I didn't have a Rolodex of investors that I, I was in a call. Um, you know, I, I started really close to home. I started by calling up my old bosses, <laughs> calling up coworkers, right. you, know, you know, a lot of my, my friends at, at, from business school, you know, right. who were start, in, interested in angel investing. So it was really starting close to home, starting with small asks, hey, $1,000 check here, there, 5000 there. And it was through that motion that, A, I got practice, right, towards that preparation. But then, you know, eventually I did start hearing yeses. And even these small yeses, yeses with small checks matter a lot, right? Because they're able to add proof, right? And add validation yeah. that, you know, because no one wants to be the first the first check in, right? So if you can amass multiple smaller checks, that can bring up some, some confidence that can kind of just lower the barrier a little bit as you start increasing your asks and, and, and to other investors. So I think just to validate the point that you made that starting close to home is a great place to start. It doesn't always have to be, hey, I have to call up this you know, big name investor. It can be, it can be, you know, a coworker yeah. or a, a, an old boss. In so many ways, those folks know you the best and can vouch for you the best too. Exactly. I mean, being a first-time founder is an adventure. What routines have been helpful to you 
Yeah. Yeah. So being a first time founder, um, <laughs> really doing anything for the first time. Like, where do I start? Yeah. You know, where do you How start? Time so what is it new? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think the, the thing is just, you know, preparing for the learning curve to be this just vertical, yeah. you know, which is, which is the most challenging part, but it's also kind of the best part. There's just, yeah. there's not a lot of things and, and you're, you're founder too in this, you know, building a podcast for the first time. And it's, it's just such a joy, you know, and it's such a privilege and an honor to be able to start something from, from scratch and learn as we go and, and to be able to just wake up every day knowing like, I just did something today that I, I didn't know how to do last week. And now I'm, you know, relative to where I was last week, I'm an yeah. expert, you know, it's just, it's just so <laughs> thrilling, so invigorating. And yeah, you know, a, a lot of it comes from the preparation from the reps, but one of, one of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten so far is just that as much as we invest in the reps, we have to invest in the rest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so recognizing oh, yes. that it's, yeah, right. So recognizing that it's so important to take some time regularly every week, every day to just do the things that fill us up. You know, for me, it's, you know, every, one day a week I do what I call my introvert time. So I just, I do, I definitely do no work. But I also, you know, kind of cut back on certain social things, you know, um, and it's just my day to recharge, whether it's getting a massage or going for a long walk, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's you know, catching up with family on phone call, like whatever it is that sort of fills me up that week and just giving myself that mental and physical break so that I can come back the next day and, and go that much harder. Um, so, you know, I think just reminding myself, like, this is a marathon and with any marathon, you can't get out the gate sprinting every, you know, every second. You have to give yourself time to rest. And that can be hard when there's just so many things to do. There's just, there's, you can't get there fast enough. There's, there's a whole world, you know, vision and, and product to be built. But, but, you know, in, in sort of this counterintuitive way, you have to be able to rest to be able to go faster. Oh, I so resonate. I think burnout is a real thing and really taking the time to shut down your brain, do something different alone time. For me, it's my runs in the morning, but then also trying to have one weekend a day when I do no work. Thank God for my husband, Marcin. He's so like, I'm very bad at doing that on my day off. I'm very bad at not doing work. And he's always like, what are you doing? What is this? We said no work today. <laughs> and I'll always be like, oh, give me five more minutes. And I'm like, okay, five minutes on the clock. <laughs> That's um, so good though. It's so that you have an accountability buddy for, for the rest, right? Otherwise, Yeah, I think we need accountability buddies for the rest actually. Yes. Because he's the same for his stuff and I hold him accountable. So yeah, I, I recommend an accountability buddy. And it's so normal. You want, you, this is your baby. You think about it all the time. If we, we, we talked about earlier at the beginning of the conversation, think about your why and do the things that really fulfill you, fill your cup. And so if you're doing this, it's likely the thing that gives you energy and you care so much about driving it forward. And so it's hard to stop because you want it to work yesterday, um, but you can't, you're a human being and you need to unplug like, yeah. like most things do. Beautiful. I wanted to ask you if you could recommend something for first-time founders, founders in general, something to help them along their journeys. I know you had a great rec, so I want to make sure we don't miss it. Yeah, I had a, a book recommended to me uh, called The Great CEO Within by Matt Machari. He's also the, um, the, the founder of the Machari Method, if you're familiar with that. It's sort of a, a coaching method that he has a, a, a will link, I shared with you the link to the, the book, which is a short read. But it's an incredible one. And it, it's sort of going back to the theme of preparation. It just reminds you that founding, CEOing is just a sum of a bunch of, you know, tasks. And it's a sum of mindset, right? And there, you can prepare. You can learn these things. And it's finding resources like, like this book that, for me, has helped me kind of build that muscle and be able to build towards, you know, doing what I'm doing today. So just want to, to share with other folks that there are resources out there that can help you build your mission, build your company. That, 
That's a great book. I have it on my Kindle. Thanks for sharing that. And what are you excited about today? What are you looking forward to and excited about? Yeah, it's a, today slash over the next couple of weeks, we're getting to the end of the year. So honestly, the thing I'm most excited about is taking a little bit of time and reflecting on the journey you know, that I've lived and that my team has lived over this year, sending little notes to, to some of the folks that have helped help me along this journey and just, you know, leaning into this time to reflect and, and recharge, um, you know, so that we can just celebrate this, this moment. Uh, we'll never be in this moment again um, and, and start the new year with that sense sure. of like progress and, and growth and, and just, you know, even more excitement for what's to come. Beautifully said. This was lovely to have you on, Emmy. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Dennis. Good to see you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.